welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. We are continuing on in a series on love. We've talked about the radical love of God. And we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians as it's talked about a number of different things, but we've been able to tie it back to this issue of love. What we've said is that if you were to look in different books, Christian books, whether it be C.S. Lewis or Jonathan Edwards or even the Bible itself, we know that ultimately there are three buckets that love goes into. One of those buckets is reciprocal love. That is when you love that which is lovely. That would be where romance gets in or the category it would be under. And then there's benevolent love, and that is when you love the lowly, compassionate, and merciful towards those who are hurting. And radical love, when you love the undeserving, when you love your enemy, when you love the person that's not willing to love you back. And we know that because of the way that the Greek renders this love, the love that you have for your enemy and the love that you have for the person that you care for in Greek is the same word. It is agape love. For if you are to love the person that you can't stand in your natural self, it will take sacrificial love. But the Bible says that for the love that you need for the person you can't stand, that's also the love you need for the person you stand next to in romance. That you need agape, sacrificial love. In order to create a permanency and endurance, what you need is sacrificial love. And if you disconnect enduring, sacrificial love from intimacy and relationship, you get novelty. This idea that you always need something new, that you need to fetishize a way to always have some unique and particular type of affection and connection. You have a desire for more intrigue and a desire for a greater experience intimacy-wise. Now tonight, uh, we are going to continue talking about sex because that's where the passage takes us. If there were any kids in the audience here tonight, I would encourage you just to know that we're not going to land the plane in any kind of uncomfortable way, but we are going to talk about a subject that the culture is already talking about. So we're going to lean into this in such a way where I pray that I would alley-oop a family to be able to talk more in detail about this. In the Corinthian culture, as we talked about in several weeks, they would have on a temple, a 1,900-foot mountain, and there would be a temple on top of it. This temple was dedicated to Aphrodite. Now, if you hear the word Aphrodite, you can also know the understanding of aphrodisiac. This means like sexual pleasure. And that's exactly why they would worship Aphrodite. It would be for sexual pleasure and sexual fulfillment. And so they would go up this 1,900-foot mountain in order to go to the temple and worship Aphrodite. And as they worshiped Aphrodite, this idea that they were being pleased sexually would work its way down the mountain, and Corinth would eventually have this mark that if you were to known being a person from Corinth, or if you were to be Corinthized was the phrase, it meant that you were a sexually perverse person. And so sexuality and sex in Corinth was not sacred, but it was very casual. And sex was happening all the time. And so last week, we talked about sex before marriage. We made it very clear that God was saying that your body is not your own, that you are meant for the Lord. But just like a drunk man getting on a horse and you emphasize something one way too hard, 
In the Corinthian church, they emphasized something else too hard. And the idea was that, no, 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 no. We're not going to have sex. In fact, sex is bad. Sex for pleasure is not a good thing. And so what the Corinthian church started to do was presume that even married couples were viewing sex as a bad thing. And they were not having sex. And so what Paul would do in this text is he would encourage them to actually have sex in their marriage. Now, this crowd tonight is mostly single. Some are couples. But for those of you that are single, you're getting a window into reality. Because sexual intimacy in marriage is one of the most contentious issues in a marriage next to finances. There are couples who don't have sex for months. There are couples who don't have sex for years. And it is not a problem because they're both cool with it. The problem comes when there is one person in the marriage that wants sex and the other doesn't. And then it creates tension. Therefore, that sex isn't a mandate for marriage, but rather it is a mandate for service based upon the needs of the other person. Before marriage, people are generally having sex about 10 years before they're ever married. On average, the average person, rather, would most likely have at least two partners before they are with their marital partner. And so already a person has become accustomed to switching it up over time. So if you were to, be, if you were to consider yourself, oh, we've been faithful for four years and I moved on to someone else, over time your body learns that novelty is the rhythm you're used to, switching it up. But the challenge is not only for those who are single and may be in the act of having sex regularly before marriage, but also for those who are married. Most married couples, on average, have sex little more than one time a week for the first 10 years of marriage. And on average, it decreases every year after that. On average, most couples are having sex 58 times a year. Out of 5,000 couples that were selected in a survey, what it was discovered was that the sexual act takes about 20 minutes. Now, to be kind, we'll just use this phrase, 10 minutes is pregame, praise the Lord, and then 10 minutes actually in the game. Work with me, Google if you need or don't. All right, so 20 minutes, okay? What they discovered is that most women like the pregame more. Most men like the game, scoring touchdowns. All right, so, but here's the, here's the average, right? 20 minutes once a week. That's what the numbers give us. In reality then, it turns out that 20 minutes once a week doing anything is about 17 hours a year. That means that in the 8,760 hours in a year, only 17 of them are actually in sexual atmosphere or sexual contact. On average then, most married couples spend less than 1% of their year actually having sex. Now that's a window into the real world, y'all. Because, and this is important for many of us to know because an actual relationship is not constantly having sex. 
our, our entertainment is constantly telling us about sex. Our music is constantly uh, getting us to be infatuated with sex. But real sex in a real relationship happens one, less than 1% of the year. I, I said last week that sex was part of a meal. And it was supposed to be a spice that you were just spicing up the marriage. And if I were to give you a plate of paprika, you would be like, this is nasty. It's meant to be part of something more. But we all know people who have eaten food that has no spices in it, right? We all know people who have eaten food that's got bland over time. And, and you may just eat it because you're hungry. It's better to eat than to not have food. So I'll eat the food even though it has no seasoning. And many times people say, I'll endure the marriage even though it doesn't have sex because I don't want to be lonely, just like that person doesn't want to be hungry. Real relationship is very, very dynamic. Real relationship is hanging out, long conversations, being friends, sitting on the couch laughing, talking, working through conflict, talking about different situations each of you are going through. I saw a picture this week of a couple, Will and Jada Smith, celebrating 24 years being married. And I was like, man, that is real marriage right there. They're sitting back on the couch. They've fallen asleep. They probably were watching Netflix. And Netflix and chill was Netflix and sleep, praise God. That in a real relationship, over time, you're just doing a lot of regular things. So why is this such an issue? Why is Paul going to actually command them to have sex. The reason why it's a command, even though it's only 1%, is because sex is one expression of intimacy. And intimacy, sexual intimacy, is when a woman knows you still want me. Your eyes are for me, still only for me. When a man feels that Sex is still a part of their relationship. You still think I'm that same guy you met. You're still impressed with me. And it reminds them of their connection. And when, when the Bible said that God has joined them together or bonded them together, it was God making this intimate connection that would be expressed through sex. And now there are couples who have what you could call a sexless marriage. 20% of married couples fit the criteria of a sexless marriage, and that would be a marriage that has less than 10%, or rather they have sex less than 10 times a year, less than once a month. The question you have to ask yourself is if people are having sex only 1% of the year, is sex coming into their mind only 1% of the year? Are we surrounded by sex only 1% of the year? Are you aroused? Are you, are you having feelings and emotions only 1% of the year? And this is our challenge because the temple of Aphrodite is no longer on a 1,900-foot mountain. Now it's in our pockets. It's in the click of a button. It's right beside us. And so we have this global education, this global sex education called porn. 
that teaches youths about intimacy. It teaches people a, a, a misfigured way of having intimacy. And so you're always hearing about sex in such a way that is, that is, that is just powerful and great and the songs we talked about last week, we talked about infatuation where the song is just like, girl, you're amazing, this is amazing. And then you look on TV and it's just like, oh, ah, wow. And then you get married and it's just like, nah. And so the reality is you get married and you both have careers and you're working hard. And, the, and, and then the truth of the matter is, is that what we're not talking about immediately in this message is we're not talking about different issues of the past. For if we were to be honest with ourselves, it's not just about do I want to have sex. Sometimes there are issues from the past that may be presenting themselves in a real relationship today. There may be physical issues that might be able to, uh, that get in the way of having a sexual relationship. There may be mental issues, emotional issues, spiritual issues. So I don't want to be trite and act like this is a simple thing of just having sex. In fact, uh, we are going to have a night where we bring our issues before the Lord, our strongholds before the Lord. Uh, we're calling it Freedom Night, and that's coming up uh, Thursday, October 4th. Uh, from 7 to 8.30 p.m., and uh, it may not just be sex or sexuality. Next week, we're talking about contentment, a very per pervasive issue in our culture, and, and we're going to talk about those things, and we're going to come before the Lord, and we're going to lay all those things down before the Lord, and we're going to ask God to bless it. Now, even if God delivers you that night, Satan will be there in the morning, amen? So we need the Word of God. We don't need just a worship moment. We need the Word of God to be able to bind our hearts and treasure that Word in our hearts, but we also need moments where we're expressing to the Lord our need. The reality is, is that the number one issue that is found that is keeping couples from having relationship is that many couples are working so hard. They're working so hard. The wife is dealing with the domestic issues and the husband is working. And many couples in New York City both are working. And when they first got the job, they might have been an intern or they might have been at the bottom and they had this, this cubicle they were in and, and they worked their way out of the cubicle and now they have their own office and now that they have their own office, they're working their way up. And all of a sudden, both guy and girl, they made it. Now they're in the boardroom. And now that I'm in the boardroom, now that my platform is here, now that I'm known, in the boardroom I have a name now. But unfortunately, the boardroom is coming at the expense of the bedroom. And because the boardroom is coming at the expense of the bedroom, couples are working so hard for that boardroom and they're crushing the bedroom and they're sacrificing the bedroom. And now when they go home, the bedroom is now a board room where couples aren't able to get fulfillment at all. And so the reality is that we have to press into both singles and couples. We have to press into this message because you are constantly hearing about your career and you're constantly hearing about sexual fulfillment. You went to your job, you heard some song about, ooh, baby, I need you. You walked into your job and you went home, but you fell asleep because there was that baby you needed was sleep themselves because they are tired too, because they took the train too, because they're worn out too. And maybe your reality has been painted by entertainment and not real life. 
And maybe that's a struggle for couples as they enter in their first, second, third year. And maybe, just maybe, many couples say, I can't do this anymore. Not because the person was so bad, but they entertain themselves out of a relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says this, Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to use a woman for sex. Now, notice again, there are quotation marks there where Paul is quoting what he's only heard from them. Again, where he says in response to your matters, meaning that they wrote a letter to Paul with all these different issues. Like, Paul, this is what happened with sex, and this is what happened with Aphrodite, and this is a guy, and he's with his stepmother, and all these other things. And then they would write about these slogans that were in the culture. And so on one slogan they heard in chapter 6, it was, everything is permissible, or everything is lawful. But this other slogan now is the other side, where people are actually saying, well, we've heard it's Sex is a bad thing. I mean, it's probably better we don't even touch each other. I mean, we want to be anointed and holy and set apart for you, God, so we're just going to not touch each other. And this was their belief. And Paul will now correct that misbelief. And he'll say, oh, no, 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 my brother and my sister. No. You see, in verse 2, but because of sexual immorality, because it's so, look what he says, it's so common. It's so casual now. Maybe a different time or a different culture. Maybe you wouldn't be so aroused. Maybe it wouldn't be in front of you. But he says, because of all the immorality around us, because you from grade school have been wanting this, and you from grade school have probably had it two or three times. No, no, no. You've got to make sure you're caring for your spouse. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. One guy came up to me, he was like, this is my favorite verse now. This is my favorite. I'm going to memorize this, tattoo it on my neck. All right, so, so this is a command for couples to have sex with one another. And Paul is encouraging not necessarily the amount of sex they're having. He's not telling them how much they have, and he's not telling them what to do. But rather, he is saying, you cannot just consider how you feel when it comes to sex. It can't be about you just feeling it tonight, and nor can it be like you overwhelming another person. It's got to be mutual. You've got to see the other person and consider their needs for you must create an atmosphere of communication and service towards the other person. Sex is not just that feeling. Sex is not just a mood. Sex is a discipline in marriage. And so I have to be connected to what you desire. 1 Corinthians 7.3, he says, A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. Now, See what this word here, he says, the word duty. The word there for duty, it essentially means like a debt that you have unpaid, an unpaid wage. And the way that it's saying that the way your body is set up for the man and for the woman, that if you do not fulfill them, it's like you have a debt that's unpaid and the person wants that payment naturally in their body. And it must be fulfilled. 
And essentially what Paul is saying, something else will fill it in. You remember uh, being in grade school and they would have those fill-in-the-blank tests or whatever school. And what it's saying is that all of us have these fill-in-the-blanks, these blanks of intimacy. And the reality is, is that if you don't fill it in, something or someone else will. That imaginary adultery of the mind will fill it in. Emotional adultery with a person at work, a person of an old friend, a person you reconnect through social media with, you'll have emotional adultery going on. Or actual adultery with sexual contact. And then the reason why this is so hard for us is because we're seeing the word duty and rights connected to sex. And we're so used to this being individualistic. I do what I want when I want with my body. And yet, in marriage, your body is not your own. And it is, it, your, your, your body is not just your mind, not just you cleaning up, but your body is an act of service based upon what the other person needs. Now, we got to remember that the Bible says, my God shall supply all my needs. So we might not be able to fill all the person's needs, but the person can't be bitter. Because they have that wage, they have that desire in them naturally, in them because we are surrounded by so much. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, a wife, watch what Paul does here, a wife doesn't have the rights over her own body, but her husband does. And then he flips it. Because if we stop there, right, if we stop there, this is mastery. This is not just beautiful submission. This is slavery. But he flips it. He says, oh, no, 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 I'm not done. And in the same way. Notice what he says, in the same way. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but a wife does. So you're hearing this imagery of authority and duty and rights. And sexual drive can be expressed differently between men and women, and it's often presumed or understood that a man would have a greater sex drive than a woman, but that's not necessarily bore out through all the stats. But what we understand is that both people can have different levels of sexual drive. But part of our problem is the way we understand sexual drive. You see, sex, if it is not just the act, but it is an expression of intimacy, then a woman's desire for sexual connection isn't just what happens in the bedroom, but it's also what happens when you clean up before the night is over, and it's the connection that you make. It is the relationship that's broader than just one space. And a woman wants talk, touch, and time in order to go deeper and get connected. And again, it could be romance, it could be physical contact for the man or the woman. But some people don't just want just the act, they want more, they want relationship, they want intimacy. My wife and I, when we first got married, uh, I was working for a church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, my wife was, at the time, she was my secretary. So I was sleeping with the secretary, praise God. And so we... um, We literally, literally would wake up together. We'd go to the office, get ready to go to work. We didn't have any kids at the time. Get ready to go to work, drive to, drive to the church. Be at work together, 
all day. Then we go home. We go home, we eat dinner. And we had eaten lunch together too. We eat dinner. After eating dinner, we would watch a TV show. After said TV show was over, we would both get sleepy. And then we would go upstairs, and then uh, upstairs, th those, there's houses in the south. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Covet. Thou shalt not covet. Sorry, sorry. Praise God. So we would go upstairs, and then when we go upstairs, uh, we would lay down and both be tired. And then my wife would look over at me, and she'd be like, hey, hey. I'm like, what's up? She'd say, uh. What are you doing? Getting ready to go to sleep. <laughs> she say, um, can we talk for a second? I'm like, and the first thing I'm at, I was like, what did I do? What did I? She's like, ah, I just, I don't know. I just, I just, I, I just, I just feel like we haven't gotten time today. And I'm like, the one thing we got, I don't. Again, I don't know what I did or what I didn't do, but the one thing I gave you today <laughs> was time. I gave you time, babe. I gave you time all day. And what my wife was really saying was, no, 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 no. I'm talking about undistracted. I mean, me and you time. I mean, we're talking about life. Yeah, we talked about what we're going to eat, and yeah, we talked at work, and yeah, we talked about what show we were watching, but have we talked about us? Have we really connected? And my wife required that in our relationship. And the reason why that is so important is because many times men feel discouraged when they're rejected by sex, but women feel discouraged when they're rejected by intimacy. And, and it is amazing the way that the brain, the way that the brain works, that it has actually been seen scientifically that the way that pain works, physical pain, often registers in the brain at the same way that rejection does. So it, that's why a person says, that hurt. And so that hurt gets carried into the relationship. Now, why is this so unique? Church, any relationship, any relationship is based upon making decisions together based upon the level of commitment you have to one another. And so... In a marriage, two people are deciding where the kids go to school. Two people are deciding what the budget is going to be like. Two people are deciding what movie we go to. Two people are deciding what we're going to eat. But then a unilateral decision is made when it comes to sex. And this begins to disfigure the relationship because we were taught that sex is only based on my mood. It's based on on my needs, and we've not heard about sex based upon your needs, based upon our relationship and connection. And so when one person decides and another person has to pretend they don't feel that way, it gets buried down and down and down into a bitter place, and we've got to stay together for the kids, and we've got to stay together in this relationship, and we've got to stay together in this commitment and this connection. But meanwhile, I have this dream of what we could be like. And again, this is for both men and women. This is both for sexual connection also, but romantic connection that both are longing for. 
And the Bible says in Philippians 2.4 that everyone should look not only to his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And that's why it's so important for you single people to just hear what I'm telling you and be encouraged by what I'm trying to say to you that sex is not, rather singleness is not some space of incarceration that God has you in. Because when you hear about sex, you only hear about restraint. You only hear about don't, don't, don't. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying do. Because sex, when you're single, is about restraint. But sex, when you're married, is about discipline. Sex in a marriage is a discipline. It's a spiritual discipline and an act of service. And that's not in a song. That's not in movies. But that's in the word. And so what Paul says here in verse 5 is, y'all, do not deprive one another. You hear that when you hear deprive one another. The, the word in the Greek is the same word of the idea of defrauding one another. Of making me feel like I was going to have something, but I'm not actually having it. Of having a counterfeit of what I really wanted. And you, you see couples walking around, you say, he looks so good and she looks so good. And I've been in the game for 20 years and it does not matter how good a couple looks. It does not matter how entertaining they seem. It does not matter how funny they come across. It does not matter how many selfies they take. It does not matter how many vacations they go on. It doesn't matter how many kids they have because many couples, though they look good, they're having a fraud. And he says, reality, you are defrauding one another. You're depriving one another. And then Paul says, you know, here's a caveat, except if you would agree upon a time to devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again. And here, essentially, what Paul is saying is that you would actually take sex out the relationship for a season in order to devote yourselves to prayer. And in many ways, this was a sex fast. And I, you know, I've, I've never applied this, praise God, but I'm sure it's amazing. But, um, but a brother in the Lord told me that he and his wife did this, and he said they did it because sex oftentimes, and this is also for single people as well, if this is where you're at tonight, um, sex sometimes can make this, the relationship seem better than it, what it really is. Sex can function like a false apology. Sex can seem like you solved something, but there's still a problem there. Sex can make you feel like you're reconciled because your bodies are close, but your hearts are still far from one another. Sex can end the tension, but it does not solve the problem. And so what Paul says is you may need to just take this out the relationship so that you can get closer to the Lord. But he says, oh, but, but, but be careful now, but come together again. <laughs> again, Paul is saying, make sure, make sure you're having sex or make sure you're checking in with your spouse to make sure how they're doing. Make sure you're not depriving them. Make sure you're not defrauding them. Make sure they're okay. Make sure their needs are met. Make sure you come back together again. And then he adds a third person to the relationship. Paul now mentions someone he hasn't talked about in the last two chapters. He didn't even mention this person when he was talking about sex before marriage. He says, ah, I gotta, 
just need to say this one last thing before I go with this subject. Um, Satan, yeah, the evil one. Oh, yeah, the accuser. Yeah, the one that tempts. Yeah. He's been tempting from the very beginning, and he's the father of lies. That guy, oh, well, this is what he does. Satan, if you don't come back together again, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, Paul creates this cosmic scenario that there is another person who is now interested, and he's watching. The Bible says that in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 that Satan has schemes, the Greek word methodia, meaning he has a method, meaning he has a playbook. So you think you're watching porn alone? You think you checked her out by yourself? You think you felt that emotional connection with him alone? sister, that was a setup. Satan knows when the bedroom is bored and disrupts, and he, he and it has been disrupted. And he wants to join the party of temptation. He wants to increase temptation as much as possible. And he doesn't want, you know what he doesn't want? And this is where the stats tell us, most couples don't even talk about sex. Sex and finances, they just don't talk about it. And it's kind of the method of our culture. We just don't talk about it. I, you know, we just, that's a hard subject. So we don't talk about it. And what this text is telling us is that whether you're talking about it or not, talking about something doesn't mean you're not tempted by it. And you are tempted by sex. And Satan himself wants to disrupt your intimacy. And Satan doesn't care. He don't care. He don't care about sex. Satan ain't like some, like, oh, he's really big into sex. Satan is not big into sex. He's big into disrupting the plan of God. And he will use whatever tool, sex, he'll use money, he'll use entertainment, he'll use whatever he can to disrupt the plan of God. And the plan of God is that you would have intimacy and it would be expressed through sex. Single people, married people, hear the word of God and hear what I'm trying to tell you. The evil one, Satan himself, wants you to have as much sex as possible in your singleness and as little sex as possible in your marriage. That is facts. And I tell you this because you have this assumption. I mean, I've, I've taught this before. I've taught this before. I promise you, I've taught this before to people that I knew when they were single. And I'd be like, yo, um, yes, average is like once a week. Not us. <laughs> We're going to break the mold. You know, people just, we going to be different. We're going to be different. This is the way, we, you know, God made us. We're going to be different. And then, like I said, I've been doing this for 20 years. You're not different. Your relationship is not that special. Satan has a plan for your life. The Bible says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he's been doing it for thousands of years. And then Jesus says, I have come that you might have life, and life more abundantly, an abundant life, a life overflowing. A life where you can serve someone else. And see, when it's all about you, 
when everything is all about you, when you haven't learned how to care and serve people, when you don't desire it, you think that's going to change when you get married? You think that's going to change when you find someone special? And the yoke of pornography is teaching you that click, 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 change, 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 change. You think you want the same thing after 10 years? You think novelty won't be the rhythm of our hearts? I say this not in any kind of condemning way. I say this because we are being tricked. We are being tempted to believe that this is normal. That 1% I told you, that's normal. Once a week, that's normal. And we hear about it all the time. We hear about it all the time. And much of our lack of contentment is that we believe that the one thing that we want is sexual pleasure. And the God of this nation is just, if I can get that feeling, just if I can get that rush. And the rush of sex is less than 20 minutes. This powerful moment. We've idolized this thing. We've idolized sensuality. In reality, it is hard work. Sex is hard work. It's a service. Before I go on a trip, my wife would be like, you okay? You okay before you go? Just let me know. But see, all of her family members and all of our friends are like, he better. I mean, and everybody's got this belief like, well, that's on you. That's on him. That's on. No, it's on us. And all we hear about is what we want. Having sex is not the pinnacle of life. And I know that's what it feels like, it seems like. Sit with a married person that you trust. Hear about the real story, the real struggle. Tonight, I pray that some of you, no matter where you're at, that you would lay down, you'd lay sex down. If you're married, you'd lay it down at the altar and say, God, help me not to just see this as an area of sensuality. Help me to see this as a space of service. Change my perspective. But for you that are single, you say tonight, God, I don't want to go. If you were to have me married, God, I don't want to go into a relationship with this, with this God of novelty, this, this, this God of needing things to switch up all the time. I don't want to be in love with just a fetish. I want to be in love with a person who gets tired and, gets, and has hard times. God, teach me to love. And I pray that tonight you lay, you lay all the portals. Now, all the portals that sex and sexuality is coming in. Now, last night we had a, a great party. And um, in my church curmudgeon, kind of like old man-ness, there's always this thought, man, I love this, this is great. 
but there's music in here that is kind of contradicting everything I'm about to say tomorrow. And I sit there and I go, Lord, I pray our people are discerning enough to enjoy music and enjoy entertainment that is talking about life and stuff that's actually not real because it's music and entertainment. And I pray that God would break the yoke of fantasy in our lives and rush in with reality. I pray he'd break that yoke of fantasy. Because if you don't break that yoke before you get a a serious long-term relationship, oh, you're going to learn. You'll learn. And for some, it will break your heart. But I serve a God that can redeem time. And I trust that as I speak tonight, the Holy Spirit is ministering to you. And you are rethinking the way that you hear and the way that you see. And I pray tonight he is breaking the yoke of how entertainment has taken us away from reality. Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, God, change my priorities, God. Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, I pray that sex would not be our God. I pray against every website that is taking away reality from our men and our women. I pray against every iPhone and every desktop that is taking away the reality of relationship from our men and our women. I pray against how simple this is to creep into our lives. And I pray for, I pray for, I pray for every marriage and every relationship in this room. And I pray that they would know the agape love of God, the permanent love of God, the sacrificial love of God, the certainty of the love of God, that it would flow from our lives to someone else. And that we would use sex to love each other and bless one another. And it would be in a space of pleasure and joy and we will be overflowing, God. I bless that 1% of the year. I bless those that are 2%, those who have a abounding sex, because abounding sex doesn't mean abounding intimacy. I pray for the intimacy in this room. Intimacy with God and intimacy with one another. Intimacy, God. Oh, God, we want to get closer to you, God. We want to experience the love of God. And we want the love of God to flow to others. Fill our lives, God. Fill our lives. Music and entertainment and website, they're filling our lives, God. They're fulfilling so much, God. And yet they're not real, God. They're not real. It's not real. And break the yoke. And replace it, God. Replace it with you. Replace it with you. For no wife or no husband can fill the void that you fill. Replace it with you. No website 
It can fill the void you fill. Replace it with you, God. The Bible said flee immorality, but that's to run to you. I want to run to you, God. God, even if I fail tonight, let me run to you. And even if I can't be the man I thought I was going to be in this marriage, help me run to you. Make our marriage what you want it to be. And make me the man you want me to be. And make me the woman you want me to be. But I'll be that by running to you. And you fulfill me. And you can be intimate. And you fulfill my life. Fill up my life, God. Fill up my life. Everything else I've tried. And yet, it never satisfies. And everyone in this room knows that when you have sex out of the context that God has made, there's always that remorse. There's always that bitterness. There's always that doubt. There's always that sunken feeling of knowing there's more. And that's not just our feelings for many of us. That's the conviction of the Holy Ghost saying, there's more. There's more. Deepen our conviction in you. And let us not end something with sex. Let us start something with you. Be my new habit, Jesus. Be my habit, God. Be my habit, Jesus. You be my habit. You be the habit I can't shake. You be the master of my life. Be my habit. You be my habit every morning. Be my habit. You be the one I click and drag after. Be my habit, Jesus. Be my habit, God. Be the one I can't shake. I can't stop thinking about. Be my habit, God. Be my habit, Jesus. Be the one I want, I long for. Be the habit I can't let go of. Let me click and drag. Let me look at you. Let me, let me long for you. Let me adore you. Let me gawk at you. I want to be a voyeur after you, Jesus. I want to look after you. I want to long for you, God. I want to go. The Bible says that one place, you are the one thing I seek, the one thing I desire, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. There's nothing like being with you, God. There's nothing like being with you, God. I want to dwell in your house. I want to have more intimacy with you tonight, God. I want you to break the yoke of false intimacy in my life and replace it with real intimacy with you. Be my habit, Jesus. Be my habit. We ask that you would just minister to us in the mighty name of Jesus. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.